You may be seated. Kids, you are dismissed. Amen. This is uh, what an incredible day of worship it has been already. We are, uh, man, whew, we're moving into kind of the end of this, this series that we've been on, on stewarding privilege, and we could not have been set up any better than we have right now. This understanding of why do we worship? We worship a God who is stewarded privilege in such a way that he has called us into relationship with him. He's reconciled us back to himself. And so this is, there's this overwhelming, we should always, when we talk about worship, ultimately it shouldn't be, are they convincing me that I should sing these songs, yeah. right? The truths of these songs should be enough to say, this is true about God. It should elicit a response from me. And so this is something that is beyond just intellectual. It's something that hopefully we can uh, experience or something that we know to be true. I know that God is truly a redeemer and a savior and a healer and it's just such an incredible, it's an incredible truth that we get to celebrate together. So as we continue, we, are, uh, we, we thought that we were going to end last week, and we decided to, to extend this out uh, two more weeks to walk through one more book that, that honestly might encapsulate privilege better than any of the ones we've done already. Uh, and I want to start with this. We talked about stewarding privilege, and we've talked about what it means to, to, to steward things for those who don't have. Right? To steward privileges that we have for the sake of those who don't to the glory of God. And we've been looking at several different aspects of what that means and what that looks like. Here's a question, though. How do you steward privilege when life doesn't seem fair? And I say this because... If you think about where we've been over the last month and a half to two months, and we've talked about privilege, and we've talked about what it means, and all the ways that Jesus stewarded his privilege, and how we're called to do the same, many of the examples we've seen in Scripture are people that have very clearly defined levels of privilege, right? Whether it's uh, resource, finances, position, influence, we've looked at all of those. And so there are those, I'm sure, those of you, I've talked to some of you, there are those that could go, listen, I'm really glad this is here. And I'm really glad other people are hearing this because I, you know, I don't really know where I fit in this part. Right? Maybe you don't have a whole lot of privilege the way that people would define. Maybe you don't have the resources. You may not have the influence. You may not have the voice that others have. And so when you're hearing these sermons, you're like, yeah, get them. But, but you're not really thinking about, man, is it, 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 where do I fit in that story? You see, because ultimately what you can do is fall into a level of self-righteousness and feel like, yeah, all those other people were privileged and need to hear this. There's nothing in this for me. I'm just going to humbly pray for them that they get it. And yet this particular book is a perfect picture of those who ostensibly have no privilege, and yet they also are called to steward privilege. They're actually called to, to steward whatever privilege, however little it is, for the sake of those around them. And so... Everybody in this room should find something in this text today. You know, we've talked about the rich, and we've talked about uh, citizenship, and we've talked about worship, and we've talked a lot about these things, and, and yet what we're going to see today is going to be something far deeper. It's going to say, listen, no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what levels of privilege you think you have or you don't have, you're still held accountable for stewarding it. So we're going to walk through this. And so it's, it's ultimately when we talk about the title of this, we've, talk, we've called it when life is not fair, I don't know about you, but kids seem to have a very interesting view of fairness. Kids tend to think, uh, in a lot of cases, something's not fair if they don't get the same outcome as another kid. Right? They got ice cream. I didn't get ice cream. That's not fair. You know, it's, it's without regard to the fact that maybe one kid did their chores and the other one didn't. 
right? The the merit-based nature really doesn't fall into play yet. They just go, they have ice cream, I don't, that's not fair. Now, as we get older, hopefully we mature out of that. Sadly, as adults, we still struggle with that. A lot of times as adults, we just, without regard to anything else that's happened before, they have, I don't, that's not fair. That's actually not fairness in and of itself either, right? Ultimately, when we talk about fairness, we, we normally are saying this. Equal or equivalent investment should lead to equal or equivalent outcome. So it's like, hey, listen, um, I, there are certain things that we can measure really easily, we can control for, right? I work 40 hours, I expect X amount of dollars as remuneration, right? That's typically what we, the way that we think. And that's fair. We can govern that, we can uh, protect for that, we can watch that, we can monitor that. But what do you do about the things that can't be monitored or measured? What about life decisions? What about life relationships? What about the person who says, over here, I've followed all of these guidelines and I've lived my life a certain kind of way and I've found the spouse that I think I'm supposed to have and I've loved them the way that I'm called to to love them and yet my marriage did not turn out the way I expected it to. And that person over there did the same thing and their marriage has worked out wonderfully. This doesn't feel fair. Maybe as parents, I've raised my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and I've uh, taught them, albeit imperfectly, but I've taught them what it means to live this life of faith and repentance and grace and mercy, and we've tried to model that well, and yet uh, I've done this, and I've got one child that is so wayward and far, and yet that family over there did the same thing, and their kids aren't struggling with that. This doesn't feel fair. This, This is easy for all of us to fall into, right? Because ultimately, you're like, I put in this. I put this type of investment, this emotional investment, this financial investment. Even my own career has been put on the line, and I invested all of this. And this is what I get in return. This doesn't feel like, I I feel like that I should get an outcome that's commensurate with my investment. That's what I feel like. All of us feel that. On some level, all of us feel that. You realize any area of your life where you've been disappointed is an area where an unmet expectation has occurred. And unmet expectations always lead to disappointment. So that we all expect something. And when when it doesn't happen, we're like, "This, this just isn't fair. God, this doesn't feel fair. Listen, God can handle that. We see those areas both in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and even in the Psalms where you see the psalmist say, this doesn't feel fair, Lord. I don't understand. We talked about this with Job. God, if only I had an audience with you to understand why these things are happening. So our understanding of fairness can really cause us to question, man, I, I don't really know what I'm called to do when life just hasn't dealt me lemonade. When things haven't worked out the way that I expected them to, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So when you're talking to me, Daryl, about privilege, life hasn't been fair for me. So I don't know where I fit into that. Can you just talk to the other people for whom life has been fair and then have them work on me and and talk to me and care for me because life hasn't been fair? Well, this story that we're getting ready to read or that we're getting ready to address, that's a lot, so we may not read through all of it, but but what we're getting ready to look at right now is is a family who has dealt with a very, what most people would call an unfair life. Folks who have been, uh, found themselves in a situation where they don't have uh, a lot of the outcomes that you would think that people like them would have. So it's, as we set it up, we're going to talk about the book of Ruth, and we're going to do this for the next two weeks, so a couple of chapters today and a couple next week. We can't get into everything. There's so much in here. So this is going to be a little bit of an overview, a little bit of a, 
uh, of a survey through, through Ruth. But here's the first thing I want you to take away when we dig into this. For those of you who have been church for any period of time and you have heard the story of Ruth, there's typically, we always jump to one aspect of Ruth really quickly. We typically jump uh, right to who we all call the hero of the story, the Boaz of the story. And if you've been in any type of church environment for any period of time, especially when it's time to talk about finding a husband, finding your Boaz is the main point of the sermon. And I'm going to tell you now, that is not the main point of Ruth. So if you, this is what we do, we read ourselves into the story so often, and it's like, let me look to the Bible to figure out how to find a spouse, how to find my husband, how to find my wife. Here it is, checklist, this is how I do it. You're missing the entire point. This is not about how to get yourself a spouse. This is actually how to, how to steward privilege to the glory of God in order that he is pleased. And we're going to see all of the characters involved do this in one way or another. So as you, as you think about this, consider kind of the situation. We've talked about this a little bit. We've got a, a story here of, of a woman named uh, Naomi. She's married to a man named Elimelech. And Elimelech, is, uh, he's, he's got two sons with Naomi. They live in uh, Judah and Israel. And there is a famine. This famine uh, wipes folks out, and so people begin to leave. And so they leave to go to Moab, where they hear things might be better, where life might be better. Now, there's a whole lot of theological discussion over whether or not it was even a godly decision to ever leave Israel to go into Moab. Because if you know anything about Moab and the Moabites, if you know anything about some of the Old Testament history, Moab was a group of people that were in existence as a result of incest. And so this was a group of people that people always kind of looked down upon and always kind of cast away. And they were a group of people that worshiped false gods. So there was a lot of pagan worship and pagan ritual and a lot of things that were wicked in God's eyes. And so if you were a good follower of, uh, of, of Yahweh, of Jehovah, you would not normally find yourself amongst the Moabites. And so not only do you see them leaving to go to Moab, they leave Israel, they go to Moab. Elimelech and his wife and his two sons. But then Elimelech dies. And when he dies, he leaves his two sons with his wife. And the two sons ended up marrying two women. Orpah, not Oprah. Every time we read that, it's really easy to do that. It's not Oprah. <clears throat> Orpah and Ruth. Now, these women were Moabitesses. They, they were women from Moab, from Moab. And so these men took foreign wives. They married them. And then those two men died. And so now you've got Naomi and her two daughters living in this world that has no structure in place to protect women who are widows, women who are immigrants, women who are foreigners. So now you've got this really sad story, right? Because I just want you to think about this. Imagine you being in, those, in, the, in the shoes of Ruth or in the shoes of Orpah. Man, I married these good Jewish men, and uh, you know maybe they're starting to learn about the faith. We know for sure Ruth was, and, and, and all these things are starting to happen, and they're really excited for this new life and this new uh, marriage. And then my husband dies, and now I have no protection. We talked about the likelihood of widows that would be uh, uh, assaulted, physically violated without any type of protection for them. And they're like, this is going to be our life. What are we going to do? Now, when you're in that situation, when you're in a situation where you feel like life has not been fair, things have not been handed down to me well, I don't have an understanding for why life is working out this way, does your next thought go, 
How do I still steward what God has given me here for the sake of others? That's not normally our mindset. Normally our mindset is to become very self-absorbed. And we feel justified in doing so because life hasn't worked out. Legitimately, life has not worked out. So no one's, no one's saying, hey, you know, no one's asking you to put on a bunch of uh, plastic positivity, right? I'll never forget when we went to, um, some of you guys know, a couple of years ago, we went to, uh, to Disney with my, my son and the kids, and we all went out. It was a great time, and Sebastian uh, hurt himself really badly and cut his face open, and it was really, really bad. And while we were there, we're right in the middle of Disney, and this is happening. And there was this lady who came on the scene, and ultimately it was like she was hired to be the positive Pauline in the, in the, in, on, the, on the whole place. Like, her job was to come in, no matter what's happening, keep a plastic smile on and say, oh, everything's going to be fine for the sake of the crowd that are coming around. And you've got my son, he's bleeding profusely. He's there, he's crying out for my name. He's crying, he's crying. And this woman is going, oh, it's no big, it's okay. He's going to be okay. Talking to the crowd around because her job was to maintain this positive veneer so that other customers don't go, Something horrible is happening at Disney because you don't want to associate those two together. And I'm like, man, why, why is there someone here to just keep uh, 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 creating artificial positivity? Why can't someone just be here and actually say, I see that he's hurting and we're mourning with you? Now, this is important because what we see happen in this story what we see happen in this story really is you've got, these, you've got folks in the, on the scene. You've got Naomi. She's the one who has lost her two sons and her husband. She's got her daughter-in-laws with her, daughters-in-law with her. And as they're, they're going, they have to decide, what are they going to do? I mean, all the men are gone. We don't really know what else we can do right now. We're here in Moab. She hears, we read in the scriptures that uh, uh, Naomi hears that there is actually food back in Judah now. We can go back to Bethlehem. We can go back. I can go back home. And so she begins, and they start their trail back. Uh, they're on their way back home. Now, you got to understand, this trail is incredibly dangerous. They already know there's a good chance that we could actually be violated on the way home. This is a very far road. It's about 2,000 uh, 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 feet in elevation. There's a lot that can happen. There's no real protection for them. Life does not seem fair. And Naomi stops and says, you all go back home. You're young. You can still find husbands because in this society, there is no protection for you outside of you being married. And you can actually find a better life for yourself. Now, here's Na think about Naomi for a minute. Just it, So often, this is why it gets to me. We jumped to Boaz so fast, and you never realize that there are other women in this story that are stewarding privilege in ways you never see men do. The way that God gives dignity to women in this story is vitally important, and it's so easy to overlook because we so often are reading commentaries by men who are not even inclined to look at these women this way. But the bottom line is that out of, out of any, when you see this, when we get to the end of this, you almost get this picture that the, it's incredible that you have this book named for this woman. This woman's not a Jewish woman. She's like an outsider, an outcast, this widow. There's a whole story for her. So here's what we see. Ruth and Orpah, are, they're rolling with Naomi, and, and Naomi says, go home. Can I ask you something? When you think about what Naomi's doing here, Naomi realizes that she has incredible relational privilege with these women. You understand that, right? 
because she is this mother figure. They have submitted to their mother-in-law. They're going to do whatever she tells them to do. Those of us who have parents, you know, parents know how to guilt kids really easily, don't they? They, they, they can when they want to. And those of you that are parents, you can or you will when you want to. Because you know what your position affords you, right? You understand the privilege that you have as the parent. So you can easily go, oh, well, it sure would be nice to see more of you. Even though you got a bunch of kids and you're running around trying to get them back and forth, they're sitting there retired doing nothing. They could easily come to you, but that's a, not going to get better. Pray for me, y'all, as I pray for you. But, but you, you understand how easy it is to, to, to take your privilege and almost misuse and abuse it because of the relational stature you have with a person, with your kids. And so here you have Naomi. Naomi could easily be, she could easily say, you guys, you, you're not really being sensitive to me because of everything I've just struggled. I've lost my husband and my sons. You guys have lost your husbands, and I know that's really bad, but, but I've lost all the men in my life. And she'd be right. She could easily have just said, you guys are struggling, you guys are suffering, and I get that, but if we're going to play a game of the oppression Olympics, I win. I got the gold medal. See, that, that's really how we're all wired at times. You ever get in a situation where one, sometimes you'll see folks that start complaining about one thing and a person almost has to match or outdo and say, well, I know your knee is hurting, but I, I sure would love a foot. Like, people just have to keep <laughs> topping you, the oppression Olympics, over and over. Naomi could have done that. And everybody would have understood her for doing so. Man, she's going to be lonely. She's older. Look at what she says. It's so interesting. They're going through. You get to, uh, as, you, as you get through chapter one, you find something that happens. The first thing she does, she says to them, well, she first says to them, she says, the Lord grant you, in verse nine, that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. What's happening here? Naomi is stewarding her relational privilege for the sake of her daughters-in-law. She's saying, even though if I wanted to, I could easily guilt you into staying with me, I could easily call you and ask you, even lovingly, to stay with me, knowing what that would mean probably for your life. We're going to be poor. There's no protection for us. Everything we have is going to be based on charity. And I could easily ask you to join me here based on the strength of our relational connection. And yet I'm not going to do that. You see, ultimately what it shows is that when you actually are following God, what it means for you to actually steward privilege is this. I'm going to steward whatever it is I have, not for myself first, but for those around me first. This is vitally important. This is actually what we see throughout the Old and the New Testament. This is what it means to follow God. And so Naomi is immediately going, uh, you all have a better opportunity to live life far better than I. I'm already older. Some people think she might have been 50 or 60 years old. Even if I could have a kid, are you just going to wait for them to get of age? You're just not going to marry all this time? That's going to be really awkward. 
And now we're going to do like Old Testament cougar. Anyway, I mean, it's just going to be really weird to see those things happen. You don't normally see that. And so now you've got, you've got this situation, and it is such a dire one because Orpah, eventually, the first time, and it's interesting, much of what we know about the background of Ruth, we know from a lot of Jewish commentary known as the Talmud. And the Talmud actually lets us know that Samuel was likely the one who wrote Ruth. But what's also more interesting is that uh, you notice that throughout, uh, throughout this narrative, uh, a few times, Naomi tries to convince them, no, go back. No, go back. Your life can be better. And the first time, they both are going, no, no, mother-in-law, no, we're going to be with you. We're going to be with you. And she starts to use reasoning and say, are you serious? Think about it. Think about it. And finally, Orpah says, deuces, I'm out. I'm getting a man. <laughs> and so she does. Now, tradition tells us, which is really, this is a whole other aside, but it's really interesting. Tradition tells us that when Orpah left, she went off and actually uh, began a relationship with uh, uh, eventually marrying a soldier. This soldier was, a, was of kind of the wicked army, and her child actually grew up to become Goliath, which actually creates a very interesting dynamic about decisions and choices, right? You see, when you steward privilege for others, there's an incredible way that God blesses you. When you steward privilege for yourself, there's almost a curse that you bring on to yourself. You see this pair out throughout scripture. And so now, now you've got Orpah. She's gone, gone off, out of the picture. We don't see her again. Ruth stays. Ruth actually looks, and it's funny because you, the first time she says no. The second time Orpah leaves in the scripture, Orpah leaves, and, and Ruth, or Naomi, t tells Ruth in verse 15, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That tells you a lot about spiritually what's happening here, by the way. She's gone back to her people. She's gone back to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. You see, at, on some level, for all these years she's been married into this believing family, enough about who the God of the universe is, enough of how that God of the universe calls them to live in community and steward privilege, enough of that has bled onto her that she says, I know too much about your God to walk away from him, so I know too much about your God to walk away from you. And so she does it. She stays. Now, this is, on the surface of it, this would be a really bad decision. I mean, if you're trying to get a man, this is not the way to do it. And she, she actually says, I'm willing, Ruth is willing to live as an old maid the rest of her days for the glory of God because she feels like I'm going to steward this privilege for the sake of this mother-in-law and I'm going to be there for her. If we skip Ruth to get to Boaz, we miss God's heart. This is such a powerful picture because eventually she says, where you die, I will die. She's committing her life to this mother-in-law. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She's like swearing an oath to this woman. She says, I can't do anything else but steward this. You realize that for, for Ruth, you know what else she had to steward? You know, when you're in that situation, your youth and your singleness is something to be stewarded. So many times we create this idea that uh, the only way for you to actually be really used by God is to be married. And so we lift up this idea of being married as this greater calling. 
When ultimately you are called to be exactly where you are and glorify God exactly where you are. And if God sees fit to allow for you to be married, amen, glorify him there. If you're single, don't act like you're living beneath some special ministry calling. This is where God calls you. And you're called to steward it. So how do I steward my singleness? How do I steward my youth? Well, this is where she is. She's going, I'm single. I'm ready to mingle. I'm young. But I'm actually going to use this youth and my singleness. I'm going to use that to actually build up my mother-in-law instead. So she does. And she commits herself to her. Understanding all that that would mean. She knows what would happen if she left her mother-in-law. There wasn't like a retirement check coming. She knew that she would likely be uh, this old maid that would be, uh, that would be a, a beggar for the rest of her days. Likely the, 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 this outcast in the community and people are kind of laughing and throwing coins at her because she's kind of the laughing stock of the community. She knows that that's where she's headed. So she says, listen, I'm going to steward my life for yours. And so they go on and they leave. They're leaving Moab and they're going to Bethlehem and, and they get there. And as, as they get there, there's one other thing that happens. When, when Naomi gets there, Naomi clearly is known by people in Bethlehem because when she gets back, they're going, it's Naomi. Now, Naomi in Hebrew uh, means pleasant. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, meaning bitter. And this isn't about, understand, sometimes we, because we're so quick, to jump on a way to actually shame some of these folks in these stories really quickly. This isn't her just saying, I'm, I'm really kind of angry and bitter in the sinful sense of bitterness. She's saying, ultimately, my life has worked out bitterly for me. Life has worked out. But there's nothing wrong with saying, the way that I expected my life to go has not gone, Lord. And God can handle that. God, I didn't expect this. I didn't plan for this. I don't even feel equipped for this. God can handle that because God shows up and says, I am now going to show you how I will equip you for this. He may not do it right then and there. You may be sitting here going, I I don't get it. I don't understand. I feel overwhelmed, but I can speak out. I don't have to lie to myself or lie to anyone else. Life has treated me bitterly, and I don't understand why. So she tells these women, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because of the way that these things have hit me. My life is pretty bitter right now. What I love about this is, yet again, This is how you know. This is how you know that she's not just this bitter, cantankerous woman that's self-absorbed. Because if if she were really, really bitter, then she would have never encouraged the women to leave. She would have actually said, stay stay with me. Don't go anywhere because this is about me right now. This is one of the reasons why, and psychologists talk about this, when people have suffered, they've suffered forms of abuse or they've suffered uh, abandonment. So many, different appro- so many different directions can be taken in that. For some people, it becomes increasingly difficult to show empathy to others because there's this mentality, no one was there for me. No one took care of me. So when I see other people suffering, you need to, you need to strengthen up. You need to stop crying. You just need to be strong. And sometimes there are places where we need to be strong, no question. But other times, there are times where we need someone to empathize and walk into our suffering with us so that we can learn how to walk in that. You see, when you get really, really down and you get sometimes it's really difficult when you're in the midst of your own suffering to ever step into the suffering of someone else. And so sometimes there are people who have been hurting and they've had legitimate hurts, but there are people no one wants to be around simply because they're never, ever, 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 ever able to step outside of themselves. Naomi's not bitter here. Naomi's like, I'm hurt. Life's been bitter for me, but I'm still going to figure out how to steward my relational connection to you. 
This is, this is so important because ultimately, this is, we've talked about this this whole series. This is what worship, this is what a life of worship is supposed to look like. For so many of us, and myself included, growing up the way that I've grown up, you can so easily fall into the trap of thinking that worship is about what happens on Sunday. We're going to say it over and over again. It's really easy to be like, oh, I just don't feel like I can worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not what you do on Sunday. If you think you can't worship in a corporate setting, my question is, what does your life of, of worship look like so that you can't speak and sing out of an outflow of that? If you've had a life of stewarding your life for others, I don't care if anybody else is singing around you. You should be able to open your mouth. This, this is why this shows we have a very weak understanding of worship. We feel like we have a strong one because of the emotional thing we feel on a Sunday. We don't realize God is saying, love what you did on Sunday, but you ain't worshiping the rest of the week. And so this is the life of worship that's being stewarded right now. This is the life of worship that you're seeing Ruth live out. And so now the, the reason why I, I really want us to get this is because you're going to see that in, in, in Ruth, there's an incredible way that Ruth's life points to Jesus before we ever get to Boaz. And we're going to get to Boaz, and it's going to be a great thing. We're going to spend more time on it next week. But before you ever get to Boaz, it's important to realize Ruth is actually stewarding privilege before anybody does any stewarding. Naomi is stewarding privilege before anybody does. Now, when you get to chapter 2, what do you see happen? Well, they get back. They get back to, you know, they've been in Moab for a while, and they're, they're getting back into Judah. They're getting back into Bethlehem, and when they get there, uh, they're trying to figure out what the next move is going to be. Scripture says that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, right? This process of gleaning, this process that uh, those in, uh, in the, among the people of God, there were laws in place to care for the least of these, right? They, unlike a lot of countries, they actually had laws in place to say, if we have immigrants or poor or the widow, and they don't have any place to, to, to anyone there to be able to care for them, we're going to ensure that those who have lots, those who have fields, they don't harvest every single edge of their land. They leave the outer edge so that those who don't have can come and actually have access to the means of production. That's also a part of worship. And so, and so she goes, hey, listen, we're, Ma, we know that we're poor. We know we don't really have a whole lot of standing anywhere. I don't want to leave you just sitting here by yourself, so let me go use my youth in my singleness and my situation to go work so that I, we can actually be taken care of. And so her mother-in-law says, well, we've got a relative. I have a, there's a relative uh, through my husband, Elimelech, who, uh, who owns a field. So you go there, you go work. And so she does. She goes and uh, she works and they... They're, they're, she, she's gleaning, and if you understand gleaning again really quickly, that's this process where the owner of the field would have hired harvesters, and they would go through, and they would harvest and harvest, but they weren't allowed to pick up anything they dropped because the idea was anything that you didn't harvest, you left for other folks who needed it. And so they, she's going, basically, you would kind of go behind the harvesters. There'd be a whole bunch of poor people that would just stand behind the harvesters and wait for a grape to drop or wait for something else to drop, grain that would be falling to the ground, and they would just pick those things up, put it in their bags, and they would go, and they would divide the spoils and figure out what they, what they brought home. It's kind of like, kind of like a, like a not-so-fun version of trick-or-treating, in a way. <laughs> just did it, so... 
So they go, and she goes, and she does it. And she's got her sack, and she's, she's coming back home, and she's uh, ready. And it's interesting, because before she gets home, when she goes out there, folks are noticing. Because, you know, if you got a field, and folks have been working that same field, the same poor people have been coming, when there's somebody new that shows up, they're going to be like, whoa, who's that? And she's young. Normally, you know, you don't normally see those folks being here, right? If she's young, she likely would have found a husband right now. Like, she's at marrying age, pretty. Why would she be doing this? That's what people are noticing. So they, 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 they see her. And it's interesting because uh, Boaz sees her. And Boaz says, and you look at verse 5 of chapter 2, Boaz said to this young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Look at what happens next. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And we talked about that before, right? That was a huge thing. He understood right away. You're a woman. You're single. You don't have a husband. You don't have anyone to protect you. It is very likely that men might do any number of things to assault you. So I'm going to make sure that I put something in place to protect you. Okay? So we see that. And he says, and when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. When she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This isn't just false humility. She understands. There is no reason for you to take notice of me. I'm an outcast. I'm the lowest of the low. I, I'm, not even, I, I'm not even a Jew. I'm, a, I'm from Moab. You guys, are, you know to stay away from us. Why would you let me be here? And this is what he says. Boaz answered her, he said, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say the Lord has seen how great your worship is in the temple. He didn't say, the Lord has seen how emotionally you feel the song when we sing. He didn't say, the Lord has seen just how often you memorize scripture. All those things should happen. No one's knocking those things. That's not the litmus test for worship. That's not the litmus test for worship. So, so for him, he goes, the Lord has seen your life of worship. The Lord has seen how you have stewarded your life for the sake of others. And here's the other thing. There is a reward in the way you steward your life for the sake of others. This, you, you realize that when, especially here in America, it's so easy because we put so much focus on the Sunday service. We, their worship is amazing. And we, that needs to be a thing that we do. But it's interesting because corporate worship, again, is an outflow of a life of worship. But we will put more into corporate worship than we will a life of worship. It's easy for churches to do it. We'll put more into making sure that, that the performance is strong and, and that we have the right singers and the right musicians, and that is such a priority. It becomes such a priority that, that ultimately it's like, hey, we're having church. See, but church isn't something that you have. Church is something you are. And so for this woman, she understands this is more than just me showing out in the temple so that all the Jews can see. I really am Jewish enough, I promise. She is sitting here going, I, I'm just stewarding my life. I don't, it's not even about anybody seeing me. I'm trying to steward my life for the sake of someone who doesn't, who can't. 
My mother-in-law is one of those, and I'm close to her. I'm going to steward my life for her sake. And she says, why have you taken note of me? Why have you noticed me? I got to tell you, it's so easy to be, the time that we want to be noticed most by God is really the way that we're worshiping on a Sunday. And God is saying, I notice you by the way that you're living the rest of the week. This is how she gets noticed. This is how Boaz says, yeah, we, I took notice of you. We heard the story. We, your legend precedes you. You're the one who made the crazy decision to stay with her mother-in-law. You're the one who gave up getting married so that you can stay with an old maid and get nothing in return. Yeah, we heard about you. And, and actually, we have been applauding that because we know what that means. We understand what it means for you to steward the privilege of your youth and, and the privilege of your singleness. And then he tells her, come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, she's going right back to work. See that? She's like, man, this is really nice and I appreciate this privilege. But again, for her, the priority wasn't just finding a man. And at this point, there wasn't even anything romantic happening yet. But she's not even thinking about that. Oh, this might be good for me. She goes, I'm really glad that I've eaten, but I've got a mother-in-law that I love and I care for and I'm stewarding my life for. I got to get back to work. So she does. She rises to glean, and Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Here she is, trick-or-treating is over, putting the candy on the table. She's like, hey, this is what I got. This is what we did. This is the work that I put in. Here's the spoils of war. Here's what we have, Mom. Let's figure out what we're going to do with it. And she, she starts kind of regaling her with the tales of all that had occurred during the day. She said... She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied in verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man that you just met today is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And we're going to talk a lot about what that means next week. But she says that that man, not only is he a relative, but the way that the Jewish law works, he's one that can actually purchase all that we lost. He has the authority and the ability to purchase that back and restore us back to where we were, if not exalt us higher. Not a coincidence, is it? Here, Ruth is going, Lord, why has my life worked out this way? It doesn't seem fair. Naomi, it doesn't seem fair. And yet God is saying, in the midst of it all, I'm still the one orchestrating. I'm still the one that's in control. I'm still the one that's actually blessing, rewarding, and keeping you. So she gets, uh, she tells this story. This man is a close relative of ours, one of the redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my, by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. In other words, she's like, and he took special interest in making sure I was protected. I didn't have to keep my head on the swivel as much. I didn't have to worry about somebody jumping out and grabbing me and doing whatever. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about it. He genuinely cared about my well-being. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman lest in another field you be assaulted. She understands. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This, this story... This part of the story 
this part of the story is one that's so easy to skip over. Because the good stuff, you know, in theory, the good stuff is the next two chapters, right? This is when it all comes to bear and all of these wonderful seeming coincidences all come and they get reconciled with each other. And yet the first half of this story is so important because the only reason why, if you want to say, the only reason why Ruth finds her Boaz is because she actually stewards privilege well. It's so interesting how easy we can be when we do, we're much like the children, like, well, that's not fair. I, I, I deserve that. And God is going, listen, um, there's no question. I'm a God that, that is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, right? That's what scripture says in Hebrews, right? I, I reward those that diligently seek me. What does it look like to seek God? It means not seeking just for yourself. Seeking God means seeking for the sake of those that are around, those that are in your own community, those that are in your family, those that aren't you. How do I seek? How do I use my privilege to seek the well-being of those around me? This is the only reason why she gets noticed. It's not even her beauty that gets her noticed. It's this this story about what she's done. Now, it can be really easy uh, to, to overlook it. And the reason why I love Ruth so much is because at the end of the day, you could make an argument. I would make the argument that there is no better example of someone who has nothing, right? Someone who has so little on the surface and yet stewards their privilege in in the way Christ stewards privilege in the Old Testament. You can't find anyone better than Ruth. Here's why I say this. There are plenty of people who steward and care for people well that are men in the Old Testament. Moses does incredible things, right? Definitely uh, takes the word of God and receives the words of God and starts to begin to communicate that to God's people and leads them. But Moses was someone that people expected to do that. Moses was a big deal. Everybody knew this is, our, this is our leader. This is the prophet. This is the mouthpiece of God. This is who God is using to be able to communicate to us. So whenever there's the big deal man on the scene, you expect that. And yes, it's hard. And he still has to live a really difficult life of trusting God. But, but you see that. You see uh, Abraham being a major patriarch and doing these amazing feats of faith. Again, you expect that. These are people, these are all quote-unquote remarkable people because of all the things that they've done that God has used them for. And yet you've got this rather unremarkable woman, this, this, this group of women that have no reason for anybody to take notice of them. And you've got this woman who basically stands to gain nothing. She just stands to basically work, get old, and die. There is no, it's interesting because you, you think about what real stewarding privilege looks like, it looks like this. Greater love hath no man than this, that he that would lay his life down for a friend. There really is no better way to steward your life to say, I'm going to lay my life, including my own lifestyle, down for a friend, for a neighbor. You know how hard that is? Like this is more than just, let me go find a way for me to just go and sacrifice my body for a person. Let me just sign up for a war so I can say, I put my, line, my body on the line and I did that. No, this is deeper. What does it mean for all of us to say, how do I lay my lifestyle on the line for the sake of those around me? How do I lay my, some of my predilections and my preferences on the line for the sake of those around me? How do I say to myself, you know, even though I prefer this, even though I like this, or even though I don't care for that, how do I set that aside for the sake of those around me? Ruth is doing stuff here that she probably doesn't necessarily want to have to do. But she's setting it aside. 
It's interesting because when you think about what Jesus does, it's, it's, it's such an overwhelming parallel. You think about Luke 22, and you remember what, uh, what, what Jesus uh, says, and I think it's, it's always been something that's kind of stuck out to me because at the end of the day, Jesus is, is, is praying, and, and he's finding out, he knows all these things that are getting ready to happen, and he begins to pray, and he says, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Just let this time pass. I, I, you see his humanity. You see this issue of, Lord, God, Father, if at all possible, this, let's just be honest, this isn't fair. What Jesus is getting ready to, what he's getting ready to face isn't fair. Like you, me, we, we're the one that's supposed to actually suffer for our sins. I deserve to die for my sins. I deserve to suffer. I don't, I, Jesus is sitting here going, Father, if, if at all possible, let this cup pass. Let this time pass. Let, is there any other way? Because this doesn't seem fair. And yet, what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. You see, this again is what stewarding privilege looks like. It says, even though I have all the power in the world to be able to call down angels to lift me off of this cross, I'm going to stay here for the sake of those who don't even deserve it. I'm going to stay here and actually suffer in the place of those that really do deserve this. I'm going to steward the privilege that I have for those who don't have said privilege so that I can now give them that privilege eternally. This is the gospel. This is what it means to steward. And so you see this picture of Naomi and Ruth, these women. I mean, it's incredible if you were to say, hey, show me an example of somebody who, who ultimately, if you want to say what beautiful love looks like, it's the giving of self for the good and well-being of another. Where can I find a better picture of that? God chooses to use and to lift up a picture of women doing that. Of all characters, a non-Jewish woman. You can't skip over Ruth. And Ruth is more than just a lovely, wonderful, romantic love story. It's more than just uh, a great way to find a husband. Every man should be reading this too. Normally, these are the books that we leave for like good women's studies, and we're going to read Ruth. <laughs> if you want to know men, if you want to know how to steward privilege, study Ruth. You, we look at heroes of the Bible, and we always, men, choose your heroes over here, and, and, and rarely do men choose. I want to be like that woman. I want to go and be like Priscilla. Like, that doesn't happen. It should, but it doesn't happen. And if you want to know how to steward privilege well for the sake of those around you, look at Naomi. Look at Ruth. Because at the end of the day, the picture that we see, the picture that we see of our Savior, the Savior that actually said, I love you enough to die for you. I love you enough to live a perfect life, a life that is not deserving of any punishment whatsoever. And not only do I love you that much, but I'm actually going to, I look at things that you do, and I can clearly see that almost everything you're doing, I don't approve of. <laughs> Much of what you do, I don't approve of. All it takes is one thing that you do that I don't approve of to make you disqualified. So all of us are disqualified. And yet in that, I'm still going to steward what it is that I have for your sake. See, this is why we say it over and over again. If you cannot identify with this, if this is so difficult, if it's so hard to go, I, if you get to a place where you're like, you know what? I just can't do this because I'm just not feeling this or I don't know that I can be a part of this or I don't know that I can steward my life for this kind of a community because I don't see X, Y, and Z, then either A, you have not, you have not known the stewarding love of Jesus well 
Or B, you are just completely ignoring it for your own sake. At the, at the end of everything, what God calls us into is stewarding privilege for those who don't have. Is stewarding any, and, and, and regardless of whether you find yourself as the haves or the have-nots, there is absolutely a place for all of us to be stewarding privilege for each other. If we're going to be a community that actually paints a picture of the community that's coming, then we should be almost breaking our necks trying to figure out how do I steward privilege well for you? When you meet people in this church, before we start trying to size everybody up and what do you do and what is this and what is that, before we go anywhere, it should go, how do I get to know this person well enough to know what it looks like to steward my life for them? Yes. That, that actually should be what, pe- this is why Jesus said people will, know, people will know you by the love you have for one another. They would know that you are mine. They would know that you know the Father. They would know that you know who God is when they look at the way that you love each other. They look at the way that you steward you. This is why we say it over and over again. You can't tell if a church is worshiping on a Sunday. You can only tell if they're worshiping throughout the week. How are they loving each other? How do they get in the lives of each other? How do they steward their lives for each other? This has to be who we are. We are not the church of Jesus if we are not this. We can have put on an incredible service here on Sunday. We can have incredible singing, incredible lyrics. We can have great sermons. We can have uh, very funny, we can have videos. We can do all these wonderful things. If we're not loving each other sacrificially, this is not a church. This is a club. This is what we're called to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for not ignoring us. Thank you for not seeing uh, our brokenness and saying, I, I just can't, I just can't do this. I can't be around that. I'm so offended by that. I don't, I don't get enough of what makes me feel good. I don't see enough of what makes me feel good. God, we know that there's really not much in us that should ever give you warm fuzzies. We realize that we try and there are definitely good days and there are definitely things that we do, but we, at the end of the day, we know that our heart is not oriented in such a way that really pleases you often. We can so easily find other ways to run from you, to hide from you, to escape from you, to, to not look like you, and yet you still love us. You still come into our community. You still say, even though you could, you could have run off The same way that Orpah ran off, you could have run off and you didn't. You said, I'm staying. I'm staying. I'm going to love you. I'm going to remake you. I'm going to recreate you. God, ultimately worship we know is an act of recreation. And you are recreating us each and every day. Your mercies are new every morning. Father, it is a mercy. It is a true mercy of you to give us the opportunity to look like you, to break our hearts, to to bring us to a place of repentance where we can stop and say, I realize in this area I'm still not looking like you. I realize that my heart is still not loving the way you love. I realize that there are areas in my life where I'm not hating things that you hate. Ultimately, God, we know it's a function of your mercy that you even bring us to that place. So God, I pray that every man, every woman in this room that we would be overly, we would be so overwhelmed by, by the example of Ruth and the perfect life of Jesus and how this shows us and teaches us how to steward our lives well for your glory. God, I pray that each of us would ask the question, how am I stewarding my life for my neighbor, the person that's sitting right next to me in this room, the person sitting right behind me in this room, 
the person sitting right to diagonally from me in this room. God, will you start to, to allow that to kind of impress upon our hearts? Let that be something we think about. It doesn't have to happen, uh, quote unquote, coincidentally. Let us be intentional. Show us what it means to love each other well, Father. Let us be a church that other people see and go, if that is what the love of God looks like, I want to know who he is. God, we're so thankful that you have loved us this way. This is the only hope that we have. We thank you now in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to the table, this is the picture of what it means to actually be in community, right? This is what it means to actually be loving each other like family. Eventually, in, a, in, a, in, a, in about a month or so, we're going to be going into the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be digging into a lot. So be ready. Bring your popcorn. It's going to get really hype. But one of the things you'll see when we get there is all the ways that the church was abusing so many forms of, of worship, right? Because worship is all of life, right? They were abusing so many forms of worship, whether it was spiritual gifts, whether it was uh, uh, the way that their relationships were with, with each other whether the, the, the way that they abused communion. We find that, the, that there were people who were uh, eating all of the, the food and, and, and the wine before certain people could get there because people weren't caring or thinking about others. They were just thinking about themselves. And this is why when Paul says, examine yourself before you come take this, this is both to examine yourself for individual sin that we have not repented of, but it's beyond that. It's also examine yourself for all the ways that you have overlooked your neighbor. How have I overlooked my neighbor first? Do I even have a heart posture that makes me oriented toward my neighbor? Or do I look for every reason to ignore them? Before you come, this is a time of repentance for that. And it's only a function of God's grace that we get to do that. We get to stop right here and go, Lord, who am I missing? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, who am I missing? Who have I overlooked? Who do I still harbor real ill will toward? See, that's not love. That's not stewardship. And ultimately, every area of sin in our life is an area where we lack stewardship. Whether I'm not stewarding my life in a way that glorifies God, stewarding relationships, money, time, talent, treasure, whatever it is, sin is always a function of poor abuse of stewarding and stewardship. So how do I... This is what God is calling us into. How do I figure out, Lord, show me. Let this be a time of repentance to see God before I come and partake. You realize when you come partake of this, what we are proclaiming is this. I believe that I've been reconciled to a holy God, and I believe I've been reconciled one to another, and I'm living my life in such a way that declares that. If that's not your life, then examine yourself. The scriptures say that he is faithful and just to, 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 to forgive us of our sins. And so we can repent this very moment, Lord, I have not stewarded my life in a way that says that I even love you, and I'm not stewarding my life in a way that says I love them. Our prayer every single Sunday is that a person, any of us, would actually say, this can be my first communion where I truly understand what it means to be loved radically and neighbored by God and what it means to be remade to neighbor each other. If this isn't true, if this isn't something that you, you just don't get, you just, I'm just not sure that I'm there, again, God wants to meet you where you are. He doesn't want you to fake it. 
He doesn't want you to play. This is not about who sees me. This is not about any of that. This is about declaring something that's either true or it isn't. And he cares so much that he says, I want to meet you where you are. So if you're not sure, if you're like, I, I just don't know that this is something that's true for me. I don't know that this is really where my heart is. Pray right there. Don't come. Don't partake of something. Don't declare something that's not authentically true of where you are. Meet God first. You don't need this bread or this wine or this juice. You need Jesus first. As our volunteers come, we want to remind you that when we do communion, we do it by the process of intention. And so you will come down the middle aisle, get a piece of uh, bread, you'll grab a piece of it and dip it in either wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup, this is my blood. This is the blood of a new covenant. This is the blood that's poured out for the remission of sins. This is the blood that makes you family. This is the blood that gives you adoption into the family of God. This is the blood that allows us to call him father, daddy again. And this is the blood that allows us to be brothers and sisters again. Take and drink of it. The Apostle Paul tells us that every single time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You see, there really is no other thing that we can proclaim more so than before we need anything else, before we need another sermon, before we need another song, we need Jesus. We need him to come. He's coming to make all things new. He's coming to make all things right. All these broken relationships, he's coming to make those things right again. If this is your greatest hope, if this is true for your heart, then come taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. Let's eat together.